This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Emmanuel Osei. May his soul be elevated in heaven. It's an incredible, packed Parsha. Again, we're following the amazing figure of our patriarch of Abraham. He is circumcised at the end of last week's Parsha. And our Parsha begins with a very dramatic visit by three angels. Abraham is informed of the pending demise of Sodom. He launches a salvo of prayer to save them. We follow the angels as they descend upon Sodom, saving Lot and part of his family and overturning the city. Abraham relocates again. He had been at the outskirts of Sodom, bestowing hospitality and faith upon the passerby. And now that Sodom is gone, Abraham relocates under the mistaken impression that they were the world's only survivors. Lot's two daughters ply him with wine and get impregnated by him in the cave, producing two bastard boys, the forebears of Ammon and Moab. Again, Sarah is abducted, and again, is miraculously untouched, and again, Abraham is showered with wealth as a result, and the Parsha ends with the two Torah readings that we do on Rosh Hashanah. We have the birth, maturation of Isaac, and the banishment of Ishmael, and finally, the Parsha ends with the most dramatic episode of them all, the binding of Isaac. It is an epic parsha with an incredible smorgasbord of juicy subjects to explore. Let's begin. Today we have something very special on tap. We're going to start with an amazing idea from the end of the parsha, from the episode of the binding of Isaac. And we're going to tie it in to a lesson that we're going to draw from the beginning of the parsha, and that lesson will serve as a fundamental insight that I think could really ground us to understanding what it is that we're here to do. And we're going to cap it off, please God, with an amazing question, a question that will make us smarter, more intelligent, and maybe even more handsome and beautiful. Let's begin. The Parsha ends, of course, with the episode of the binding of Isaac. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son, take Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And Abraham dutifully obeys. He takes his donkey, he takes the two youngsters with him, and they travel for three days until they arrive at the mountain. Abraham and Isaac ascend. The two other ones remain below with the donkey. They prepare everything for the slaughtering of Isaac to fulfill the word of God. They assemble the altar. Abraham is all ready to go. Isaac is affixed to the altar. At the last moment, the angel cries out from heaven, Stop! Don't do it! Instead, use this ram that is Moving around, thrashing about in the thicket, Abraham disentangles the ram and offers it in Isaac's stead. Now, the Midrash tells us that this journey, this three-day journey to get to Mount Moriah was an eventful one. For three days, the Satan, the Satan, was trying to torpedo this. He knew that if Abraham succeeds in this final test of the ten tests, this would give the nation of the Jewish people of 
Abraham's descendants, tremendous merit, a reservoir of merit that they can forever draw upon. And he wanted to stop it. So he presented all sorts of obstacles along the way. And the Midrash tells us that he first came to Isaac. And the Satan appeared to Isaac in the form of a youngster, like Isaac himself. And the Satan, impersonating a youngster, tells Isaac, where are you going? Well, I'm going to study Torah, Isaac responds. Are you going to study Torah in your, in your lifetime or after you die? So Isaac responds, well, how could you study Torah after you, after you die? So the Satan tells him, don't you know what Abram has in store for you? Your dad wants to execute you. He wants to slaughter you. He wants to offer you as a sacrifice. Don't do this. Don't go with him. Don't travel. He's dangerous. Don't go with your father. The Satan tried to stop the binding by going first to Isaac. And Isaac says, listen, I know that after all, my soul is in God's hand. And if it's in God's hands and it's in my father's hands, whatever they want to do with me, I'm fine with. So the Satan proceeded to go to Abraham and appeared to Abraham as an old man. And the Satan, impersonating an old man, comes to Abraham and says, well, where are you going? So Abraham responds, I'm going to pray. So why do you need uh, those paraphernalia of a sacrifice with you? Why do you need the, the wood, the sticks, the trees, the fire, that really razor-sharp knife that you have with you? Why do you need that? So Abraham tries to deflect and says, well, we might be here for a while and uh, I prepared a barbecue. I might need it for some other purpose. So the Satan persisted. A man like you, you were given a son after so many years. You were uh, almost 100 years old. You were 99 years old. And Sarah, what a miracle. She was, she was 90. Now you're gonna, you're gonna kill your own son. This precious soul. Isaac, you're gonna snuff this soul out. Don't you know that you'll be forever judged for this? So the Satan is told by Abraham, well, this is what God wants of me. And Abraham and Isaac trucked along. And once the Satan saw that it's not working, he upped the ante. And he transformed himself into a raging river. And once this party arrived at the river, they tried to navigate past it. And Abraham said to Isaac, let me go, let me go inspect the depth of the river. So he travels to the middle of the river, the Midrash tells us, and the water is just up to his knees. It's easily navigable by foot. Let's go into the river. They descend into the river. What does the Satan do? He makes the river deeper. And now they're walking in water that is neck deep. At that moment, the Midrash tells us, Abraham lifts his eyes heavenwardly and says, Master of the world, I know that you are the God in the heavens above and in the earth below. And you told me 
that I want you to sanctify my name. There's only one Abraham in the world. And there's no righteous person like you in the world. Come reveal my name in the world. Do this act for me. But look at us. Now we are drowning in this river. If we drown, if we die in this raging river, who is going to pronounce your name in the world? Right away, God screamed at the Satan and the water vanished instantly and they found themselves on dry land. And they continued until they arrived on the mountain and the story played out as it did. But the Midrash is telling us that this was not just a simple test. For three days, Abraham and Isaac had to overcome the Satan who was throwing all sorts of curveballs their way, trying to get them to abandon this tremendous mission, this tremendous mitzvah. And here's the question. Here's the question to open up our Parsha podcast for Parsha's Vayera. Abraham erects the altar. Isaac is now on the altar. Everything's ready to go. It's game time. And an angel appears. And says to Abraham, stop what you're doing. Don't touch the lad. Don't make even a small minor wound. Now I know that you trust me. Instead, take the ram. And indeed, Abraham listens. He stops and he supplants the ram that's thrashing in the thicket. The ram is trapped by its horn, by its shofar, in the brambles. It's entangled in the brush. And he takes the ram and offers the ram as a sacrifice, as an ola, as an elevation offering instead of Isaac. Here's the question. For the whole duration of the trip, the Midrash tells us, the Satan is trying to get you to stop. And now suddenly you you hear a voice and the voice tells you to stop. How do you know that this is not the Satan again, up to his old antics, trying to get you to stop, trying to get you to refrain from doing this wonderful mitzvah. That's what he's been doing before. That is his raison d'etre, if I pronounced it correctly, forgive my French. That's what he does. He tries to get you to stop doing this mitzvah. And he's established a pattern of trying to get you to stop for three days. And now someone tells you to stop and somehow Abraham is convinced that this in fact is a legitimate message from God to stop. And he stops. What gave it away that this is not the Satan once more? This is an interesting question. And this year I saw an answer courtesy of the great Rabbi Meir Shapiro. He said something just unbelievable. Abraham saw that the ram that he was to supplant Isaac with was trapped. The verse tells us it was it was caught in its horns, in the branches, in the thicket, in the brambles. And Abraham had to go and, and skillfully navigate it free of those branches. He had to disentangle the ram that was all caught up thrashing about. If the Satan is trying to get you off the path, he is going to make it very, very easy for you to abandon the path. Once Abraham saw 
that the path that was presented to him demanded that he has to disentangle and navigate and free and loose loosen the ram that was all knotted up, all tied up in the thicket, he knew that this, in fact, was the right path. Because the right path is going to be a little bit hard. The Satan, the Yetzirah, is always going to try to make it super duper easy. Just, just choose this. Just abandon this. Just veer off the path. If this ram was the handiwork of the Satan, it would have been delivered to him on a silver platter. It would have walked over to him gently, placidly, timidly, tepidly, and offered itself. When Abraham saw that he needed to disentangle the ram to navigate it free of the trees, he knew that it's possible this, in fact, is from Hashem. This is not from the Satan, and in fact, the Almighty wants him to go down this path. What an incredible idea to get our Parsha podcast started. The essence of a mitzvah, we can say, is a certain repudiation of the Yitzhahara, alternatively called the Satan. By definition, there should be some degree of difficulty in advancing our spiritual agenda. By definition, if we are advancing, if we're doing what Hashem wants of us at a given time, there's going to be some element of overcoming challenges. The path of the Sahara, the bad path, the path of the Satan, will invariably be the easy way out. If we are constantly advancing, if we are constantly conquering new territory that had previously been the domain of the Sahara, of the Satan, that was previously inaccessible to us, was beyond us, by definition, there's going to be some resistance. If we're going to elevate ourselves, if we're going to transform ourselves, if we're going to do what the Almighty wants of us to become greater people, bigger people, more spiritually sensitive people, people who are more righteous, that's going to entail a certain degree of overcoming, of difficulty. What an incredible insight. What an idea to get started our Parsha. But I want to take this a, a bit further. I want to probe this idea a bit deeper. When we do a mitzvah, we overcome the Yitzhara. We overcome the stasis and stagnation and status quo of who we are and become bigger people. We elevate ourselves. We transform ourselves. What are the consequences of that? To answer that question, I want to look at the beginning of the parsha. And I want to examine Abraham's interaction with the three guests, who we later discover are angels, masquerading as weary travelers. Abraham's going to bestow tremendous kindness to these three angels. In a way that we will see is kindness unmatched by any other documented instance of kindness. And we're going to see the tremendous consequences, the after-effects of Abraham's superlative kindness. Now, we know that Abraham, he's eternally associated with kindness. The verse tells us, chesed la'avraham, the kindness is for Abraham. 
And the Talmud tells us that Abraham used his kindness as a means to promote and to advance his efforts to spread monotheism. He positioned his tent, his tent with four entrances, to be able to scoop up any passerby, any traveler, and to bestow upon them kindness and hospitality, to give them a sumptuous meal. And when it was done, he taught them about faith. They wanted to thank him for his tremendous kindness and hospitality. And he says, don't thank me. I didn't do this. I didn't make these animals that you ate. I didn't make this water that you drank. I didn't do anything. You have to thank God. And if they refused to repudiate their idols, if they refused to acknowledge God, Abraham would compel them. He would say, otherwise you got to pay. you got to pay for this five-star meal that I gave you. And that would convince them. And this is how Abraham created his movement. It was with kindness. And the Talmud tells us that Abraham's kindness was perpetuated to his descendants. The Talmud of the book of Yavamos, page 79a, tells us that there are three identifying qualities of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From each one of our illustrious antecedents, from each one of the three patriarchs, we received one eternal quality. Baishanim, to be bashful, Rachmanim, to be merciful, and Gomlei Chassad, to be hospitable and kind. These three qualities became natural, inherent, and inborn in their descendants. From Abraham, we got our predisposition towards being kind. The kindness of Abraham was so deeply embedded in his DNA, it forever became expressed in his descendants. By contrast, last week we talked about Lot, that his kindness was not perpetuated in his descendants. It was not bequeathed to those that came after him, but that's Lot. Abraham, all of his descendants are kind and hospitable. In fact, even Ishmael. Ishmael, we know that the Ishmaelites, they also excel in kindness and hospitality. Why? They're descendants of Abraham. But in our parsha, we see an episode of Abraham's kindness and hospitality that the Torah chooses to showcase. And when we examine it carefully, I think we will conclude that this is the greatest act of kindness and hospitality ever recorded. At the end of last week's parsha, Abraham was circumcised at the age of 99. And our parsha begins with Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Of course, the Torah is not making small talk. It's not chatting about the weather. Rashi tells us that God removed the sun from its sheath. God made it unnaturally and oppressively hot. And the reason why is because Abraham is recuperating. And Abraham, every day of his life, was engaging with all the passerby, giving them kindness. But Abraham needs to rest. Abraham needs to recover. So I'm going to make it so hot, says God, no one will be traveling. And therefore, Abraham won't have any passerby and won't be encumbered with work. And he'll finally get a few days of rest to recover from his surgery. But Abraham is sitting at the entrance of the tent. He is still awaiting guests. And he's distraught. He's distraught at the dearth 
of guests to bestow hospitality upon. And therefore, God sends him facsimile guests, fake guests, angels masquerading as guests in order to appease him to give him some opportunity to do kindness. So first of all, this shows us Abraham's obsession with kindness and hospitality. It's not something he's willing to do. If someone really, really needs it, okay. This is something that he did with such regularity and consistency that when he wasn't able to do it, he experienced pain. He was distraught at the inability to give kindness. This is a very different level of a relationship with hospitality than we're accustomed to. He had transformed himself into someone who lived to help others. And when he was unable to bestow kindness, he was distraught. Now, if we look at what he actually did, it's just unbelievable. He's 99 years old. His physical condition is really bad. He's recovering from surgery. The weather, there's a heat wave, and it sidelines all human travelers even before humans got coddled and finicky. Oh, it's 73 degrees. Oh, I can't manage. Today, face it, let's face it, we're, we're kind of spoiled. When things are a little bit not perfect, we start to kvetch. But back in the day, they didn't have that. And it was so hot, even the ancient travelers said, this is too much for me. Moreover, look at the opportunity cost. Look at what Abraham had to forfeit to do this kindness. These three guests arrived at the same time that God appeared to him. And Abraham had to make a snap decision whom to engage with, with God or with the guests. And he tells God, wait a second, I'll be back. Talmud tells us that he taught us a lesson that hospitality is, in fact, even greater than prophecy. No, this is especially astonishing, given that Abraham gives them water to wash their feet. And Rashi tells us that he suspected that they were idolaters who worshipped the dust on their feet. Nevertheless, Abraham gave up. He forfeited prophecy for hospitality. So the opportunity cost is severe, but Abraham makes his decision. And then he begins with outstanding speed and alacrity. He's running, he's hurrying, he's rushing. He runs to the tent, to Sarah, and he tells her, hurry up and let's make some bread. And then he runs to the cattle and he takes the young baby calf, good and tender, and he gives it to the lad and he tells him to do it fast. Rashi points out, the verse says that Vayikach ben Bakar, he takes the baby calf, rach v'tov, that's good and tender. Seems to be some extra words. Rashi tells us that actually he took three bovines, three calves, because there are three travelers and each one has to have a whole tongue with mustard, with mustard. (laughs) Indeed, Abraham feeds them butter and milk and succulent tongue with mustard, no fish apparently, and they ate. This is an absolute masterclass in kindness and hospitality. 
This is nothing like what we've ever seen in our lives. With great speed, he's rushing to make this sumptuous feast, three tons and mustard. He tells God, wait a minute, I need to feed these idol worshippers. He's infirmed. It's 99. It's a heat wave. The Ramban points out that he did it all himself, despite having an enormous household with myriads of servants. Indeed, this is the single greatest documented act of kindness. Now, our sages tell us this was not just the greatest isolated deed of kindness. It effectuated lasting consequences. The Midrash tells us, for example, this is only hinted to in the Torah, one of those cows that Abraham took escaped. And Abraham, at the sprightly age of 99, perhaps even dripping some blood from his surgery, he's chasing the cow, and the cow runs, and Abraham's pursuing it. And the cow settles in a cave. Abraham enters the cave and he sees a candle that's lit. And he sees that buried in this cave are Adam and Eve. And he learns that he has chanced upon one of the entrances of the Garden of Eden. He makes a note of this cave jots down the coordinates on cuneiform. And of course, next week, he buys this as a burial spot for him and for Sarah, and eventually Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah are interred in the cave of the patriarchs. The Balaturim, in fact, says that if you unscramble the word or the words of the verse, Ve'el ha-bakar Avraham, to the cattle, to the livestock Abraham ran, you unscramble the words, it can read, Ve'el ha-kever, and to the grave, Abraham ran. Amidst this greatest act of kindness, Abraham discovers the cave of the patriarchs. So this is a lasting consequence of this story. But there's another lasting consequence of this act of kindness. This is featured in Rashi, sourced in the Talmud, Bava Matziah, page 86b. Rashi tells us that the verse says, that Abraham gave water to these people, but he did it via a third party. You may some water be taken for you, so you can wash your feet. Rashi tells us that he did it with an emissary, with a messenger. And the Almighty repaid his sons, his descendants, also with a messenger. As the verse says, and Moshe lifted his arms, his arm, and he struck the rock. The Talmud tells us that everything that Abraham did himself, they were rewarded by having God tend to Abraham's descendants himself, except for the water. Why did our nation merit to have manna? for 40 years, and quail for 40 years, and roving clouds of glory for 40 years, and divine closeness and divine care for 40 years in the wilderness? Why did we merit that? Talmud tells us. Because Abraham 
in this greatest act of kindness ever recorded, because he took care of the angels, God took care of his children. And whatever Abraham personally tended to the angels in those parallel areas, God personally, so to speak, God himself tended to the nation. But there's one thing that Abraham gave to the angels via an emissary, via a go-between, and that's the water. And why did God use an emissary to give the nation water? Of course, remember that Moshe struck the rock in order to get it to emit water. That's because when Abraham gave water to the to the angels, who he thought at the time were people, wary travelers, he used the go-between, he used an emissary, and therefore tit for tat, when God gave water to the Jewish people, it was also via an emissary. Now, if you play this out in your head, we know that Moshe was barred from entering the land because of the sin of him striking the rock. For the manna, Moshe was not needed. God himself delivered it. Why? Because the food was done by Abraham himself, and therefore the food for his children was done by God himself. And therefore there was no room for blunders when it came to the manna. But the water that Abraham did via an emissary, that was repaid to Abraham's descendants via an emissary. And once it's in fallible human hands, even if it's the hands of of Moshe, there is room for a mistake, even a titanic blunder. As a result, Moshe hit the rock instead of speaking to it, and therefore was barred from entering the land. And as we've spoken about in the past, whatever Moshe acquired was done eternally. And therefore the Torah that we have from Moshe is eternal. The mission that we had from Moshe was never destroyed. But the conquest of Canaan was not done via Moshe, and therefore we can be banned. We can be expelled. We can be sent into exile from the land. Meaning that the roots of the exile and the destruction of the temple, they lie here. Abraham gives water via an emissary. Moshe in the wilderness, gives water for an emissary. There's room for a blunder. Moshe is not allowed to enter the land. And therefore, we do not acquire it permanently. So, of course, this elevates the consequences of this story. This seemingly innocuous story of Abraham offering food and water to the angels, it elevates it to a much higher realm. As an aside, why, in fact, did Abraham use an emissary for the water? So this week, my friend, the brilliant Rabbi Elchanan Shaf from Los Angeles, sent me a copy of his new book on the Torah called Chin of Echista. And this morning, I was perusing it. And he asks this question, why, in fact, did Abraham use an emissary? To give water to the angels to wash their feet. So he suggested very brilliantly that Abraham didn't want to embarrass these, what he thought were Ishmaelites or Arabs, because they would bow down to the dust on their feet. And then he said, let's use an emissary. I don't want to, have to tell you directly that what you're doing is, is wrong. And then he said, okay, when I'm going to rebuke you, wash your feet, clean off that idolatry, I'm going to use someone else to rebuke you. 
But maybe Abraham's mistake was to assume that having a flaw, having a shortcoming, is necessarily something to be embarrassed about. What Abraham should have done is to say, listen, you made a mistake. A lot of people make make mistakes. You worship idolatry, that can be fixed. Here's some water, let's wash it off, and let's learn about the one true God. Maybe that's the roots of Abraham's mistake. Of course, a brilliant answer that I just saw today in this new book called Hina Vechista. It's written entirely in Hebrew, but check it out. I'm sure it's for sale someplace. Though I got a copy delivered to my house. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shaf. But regardless, we see that this episode of kindness of Abraham, it's not only the single greatest episode of kindness, it bore generational fruit for Abraham's descendants. Now, I think we can ask an interesting question, or at least we can make an interesting observation. While it is undeniable that this is the most special, most dramatic act of kindness, but the reward that this act engendered was the sustaining of the nation for 40 years in the wilderness. Of course, on two tiers, what Abraham did directly, he was, or his descendants were rewarded directly. What Abraham did via a messenger, God did via a messenger too. But this episode, in contradistinction to every other episode of Abraham's kindness over his long and fruitful life, this is the episode that begot the eternal reward of 40 years in the wilderness of food, that is, for 40 years, of sustenance for 40 years in the wilderness. If you think about it, it's a little bit lopsided, asymmetrical. How many acts of hospitality do we imagine that Abraham did over the course of his lifetime? So we know, this is already evident in our parsha. he did it every single day. Even when he was totally sick and recovering, he did it. So we can assume it was every day. We know that Abraham lived for 175 years. But just to just give a conservative estimate, let's assume he did it for only 100 years. And let's assume that he's tending, again, conservative numbers to 10 guests a day. That results, or that tallies up to over 350,000 acts of kindness over the course of his lifetime. Yet our status tell us that there's one deed amongst all these hundreds of thousands of deeds. There's one deed that stands above all. And this one deed, this superlative kindness, this deed alone carried sufficient merit to sustain millions of Abraham's descendants for 40 years. The manna, three times a day, three meals a day, for 40 years, for a nation of millions, we're talking about billions and billions of manna meals parachuted from God in heaven. Why do the nation deserve all of that? It's all for one act of hospitality of Abraham. That one deed alone gave food and water, albeit via a messenger, for the nation for decades. Why is the distribution of reward so lopsided? Why is it so asymmetrical? 
For the countless deeds of kindness that Abraham did for the rest of his life, we don't see such eternal, such far-reaching consequences. But for this one, of course, otherworldly act of kindness, he merits four decades of divine hospitality for his descendants in the wilderness. It's not really a question as much as it's an observation. And I think that the secret to unpack this is the principle that we see in our literature, in the Mishnah and elsewhere, lefum tzara agra. This principle states that the degree of reward is always going to be commensurate to the degree of pain that was needed to earn that reward. You do a mitzvah, you get reward. You do a mitzvah that's painful, you get even more reward. The mitzvah itself could be identical. But if one was easy and one was hard, the one that's hard has more reward. Now, it's important to note, you know, why is reward commensurate or why is it even linked to pain? We don't, we don't glorify pain. We're not masochists. So it's important to understand that the pain itself is not what's being rewarded. What's being rewarded is the change, the transformation, the elevation that a given deed effectuates. Mitzvahs are there to change us, to elevate us, to make us more righteous, more spiritual, more holy, more good. But the more we change, the greater the reward. How do you measure change? What's a metric that you can use as a proxy for change? That's the degree of pain. The degree of pain of dissonance, of attrition that we have to go through to break down those walls that are keeping us small and the same to batter through the resistance that we face, the uphill battle that we face with the Yitzhara, that's going to be a reflection. The more painful it was, the more we had to overcome, the more we've accomplished, and thus the more we are rewarded. At the end of the parsha, we learned what the definition of a mitzvah is. The definition of a mitzvah is that it has to be some degree of difficulty. You have to navigate the ram out of the thicket. By definition, the mitzvah must have some degree of dissonance. Just for the sake of of precision, just to clarify, not every mitzvah should have a degree of difficulty. You know, it's a mitzvah to withhold from murder. I, I really want to punch the guy. I really want to shoot him. But uh, I'll overcome. Some mitzvahs should be easy for us. You know, oh, I'm in the store. I, I really can't hold back. I need to do some shoplifting. Oh, it's so difficult. Well, I'll listen to Hashem. I'll, I won't steal. There is a concept. Of course, this is a bigger subject. But there is, there's the front lines of our conflict. There is a part of our spiritual life that's already in, in the bank. It's already secured. So for me, you know, I've, I've been wearing to fill it every day since I was bar mitzvah. Thank God. So I don't have a, I don't have a test. There's no test. There's no challenge for me to wear my tefillin every day. My battleground with that has, has moved to other territories. It's moved to other frontiers. There is a front line of our spiritual conflict. And that's where the growth happens. The area in which you find difficulty, 
you're dueling, you're squaring off with the Yitzhara, that's where it should be hard. The meeting point of where you are today and where you spiritually have not yet achieved, you have to conquer territory from the Yitzhara, those milestones are hard or painful. Changing the spiritual status quo, that's the uphill battle. And every inch is painful. And thus, when you have to endure pain and, and trial and tribulation to accomplish a certain goal, that indicates, that pain indicates that you've changed. And the more pain, the more you've changed, the more robust that change was. And therefore, how do we find out how much reward, how much did you achieve? By the degree of pain. It's like exercise. You want to be lean and muscular and fit and metabolically healthy. It's going to demand some pain. You have to exercise. You got to eat healthy. You got to steer clear of the carbs. It's painful. Now, once you've accomplished a certain level, it becomes easier. And those future gains are going to be even harder. There's the low-hanging fruit. Once that's done, that becomes easy, but then the next frontier becomes harder, and so on. To be spiritually advanced, or spiritual exercise, if you will, we need to overcome challenges. We need to overcome the default, the status quo, the comfortable. We have to go against our nature. We have to resist temptation. We have to forego things that will draw us away from our elevated self. So that's this principle, the more pain the more reward. But what is the rate of exchange? How much more reward do we get for a painful, for something that was really painful for us to do, it was really difficult for us to do? So there is a statement that our sages tell us, Echad Betzar, one mitzvah done amidst difficulty, Yoser Mimeya Shalobatsar is more powerful, is more evocative, is more transformational than a hundred identical mitzvos when it was easy. The exchange rate between easy and hard mitzvos, it's not some sort of linear graph. It is exponential. And here we find out just how different the rates are between an easy mitzvah or even a moderately difficult mitzvah and something which is so, 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 so difficult. What does it take to be worthy of having God sustain an entire nation for 40 years? What Abraham did. The kindness and hospitality of Abraham. That one deed outweighed not a hundred other acts of kindness, but hundreds of thousands of acts of kindness does not equal one deed done with such tremendous difficulty and such devotion and such commitment. The degree of difficulty that Abraham faced to do this mitzvah, it unlocked exponentially more reward, more than all the other deeds combined. I think this is a very encouraging lesson. We're learning about mitzvos. We're learning about change. We're learning about elevation. We're learning about transformation and about the reward that they engender. 
We're here to work. We're here to conquer previously unheld territory. We're here to overcome the Sahara. We're here to battle, to wage war against that nefarious foe. If it's difficult, you can comfortably assume that you are heading in the right direction. If you have a fork in the road and you don't know which way to go, the one that's hard is likely, quite likely, the one that's the correct choice. If it's hard, well, that's a sign of things working. It's supposed to be hard. But what if it's very, very, very hard, very difficult? If you face an opportunity to do a mitzvah, and it's very inordinately difficult, you should know that you are being offered something very special. Should you accept, you may be unlocking something of tremendous, unparalleled eternal value and consequence. You have to realize that when you have a very hard test, it can be compared to holding the winning spiritual lottery ticket. You have the massive jackpot within reach. Now, if you're listening to this in the future, not during this week of November 2022, you might have forgotten that the largest jackpot in all of lottery history was just was just done this week. Someone in California, we hope they're a Parsha podcast listener, so they can send us their tithing to torchweb.org. But we had the biggest lottery ever in America. Think about what it's like to win that, to win that drawing and to hold that ticket in your hand. When you have a very difficult test, you've won the spiritual lottery. You have an opportunity to earn billions of meals of manna from heaven for your descendants, for your people. You can earn the miracle of water coming from rock, enough water to give to the entire nation for 40 years. It's important to be aware of that, to be cognizant of this, because the degree of difficulty makes it that very few people can actually succeed in that. But this is what Abraham was presented in our Parsha. Really, his his whole life, the whole Parsha and his whole Life story is one of tests and transformation and elevation, unlocking level after level. But we see a little window, our Sadie's revealed to us, that he earned enormous and dramatic reward as a result of these tests. And we should take this lesson to heart when we are given a challenge that seems so insurmountable. It may be that winning jackpot. And if we know, if we're aware of the tremendous outsized consequences of a difficult mitzvah, a mitzvah that was really hard for us to do. We're aware of that and we seize the moment. We can cash in that ticket. I'll give you one example from our sages. Our sages tell us twice in the Talmud, once in the book of Gittin on page 36b, 
And once in the book of Shabbos, I believe, I don't, I don't let this up, but I believe it's on 88B as well. Talmud tells us that if you are embarrassed publicly and you don't lash back, someone says some biting, stinging zinger to you, a remark that really, really embarrasses you, and you don't respond, you swallow your tongue, you swallow your tongue, you just accept it. You hear your shame being pronounced and you don't react. That, says a Talmud, makes you like a person who loves God in a way that matches the sun in all its glory. Which is our Seder's way of saying you've earned eternal reward in Alma Ba with one deed in one hour. And I'll also add to you one more thing. If someone is in such a situation where they were embarrassed, they were ashamed, and they didn't respond, whatever blessing they give will be fulfilled. That's what our Seder's tell us. They give a blessing at that moment, they can earn whatever they want. And you know why? Because they've done something akin to what Abraham did. A very, very difficult mitzvah. It was so hard. What did he earn? 40 years of billions of meals of manna? Of endless liters and gallons of water? Miraculously, with one deed. I say this, tell us, an example of such a deed? When someone embarrasses you, someone ashames you, Someone says something so hurtful. And our instinct is to fight back and to lash back and to show them how they're really the terrible person. If someone knows you're aware of the fact that this is the jackpot, you swallow your tongue and you say nothing, the reward is going to be so outsized. It's not going to be commensurate in a way that we would value. It's, to, it's to mention the way God values it. It's totally lopsided. It's a deed worthy of Abraham. Whatever blessing you give at that time will be fulfilled, our sages tell us. You may be getting a winning lottery ticket. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult. But cash it. Act accordingly. Okay, let's get to this week's Q, IQ question. This is a question, unlike last week. Last week's question was a eminently answerable question. This is the kind of question that needs to be savored, needs to be relished, needs to be chewed over and appreciated because it's very, very difficult to answer. It's a very clever question, but it's not an easy one to answer. So if you don't have an answer, that's okay. Just thinking about the question will make you a bit smarter or will raise your Parsha IQ and, of course, your general intelligence. The Parsha ends with the binding of Isaac, an episode, of course, that we read on Rosh Hashanah. And, of course, Isaac was not ultimately sacrificed. He was supplanted by the ram that Abraham disentangled from the bushes. Now, the Midrash tells us that this ram was very useful. This ram, the Midrash tells us, was created at twilight of the week of creation. It's been around for a while. And after Abraham slaughtered it, sacrificed it, 
He burned it. The ashes of this ram, that is the foundation upon which the inner altar in the temple was built. So, of course, Mount Moriah is what we call today Temple Mount. And the ashes, they served as the foundation of the altar. And the sinews of this ram, they were made into the streams of David's harp. And the skins of this ram, they were the garments of Elijah. Elijah is described as someone who had this elaborate tunic or garment of sorts. Where'd that come from? Where'd that leather come from? It came from this. I don't know if it's quite leather, but whatever it is. The, the garments of Elijah came from this ram. And the horns, the two horns, the two chauffeurs of this ram, the left one, which was a bit smaller, was blown at Mount Sinai. At Sinai, there was the blast of the chauffeur that indicated that the event is over and the mountain is approachable. That was the chauffeur, the left horn of the ram. And the right horn would... And the right horn, which is larger, that is lined in weight. In the future, when Messiah comes, on that day, they will blow in the great shofar, and on that day, God will be a king over the whole world. When you hear the sound of a shofar blowing, that may be heralding the arrival of Messiah. I once had a, a malfunctioning faucet in my bathroom. And it was making this whistling sound. I said, oh, is that is that the sound of the chauffeur? Is that the sound of the chauffeur? Is Messiah here? It turns out it was just some bad plumbing. But that's what the Midrash tells us, that this ram, every part of it was used. And the horns, the left one, well, that one was used to blow the chauffeur at Sinai. And the right one, we will use it in the future. Now, here's the question that we have to savor. We have to just appreciate. We have to just enjoy. We know that Isaac was supposed to be offered as a sacrifice on this mountain, on this altar. What kind of sacrifice? There are a lot of different types of sacrifice as an ola, as an elevation offering. And instead, Abraham offered the ram as an elevation offering. Now, in the book of Leviticus, we read about the beginning of chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Leviticus, it talks about the elevation offerings, the Ola offerings. And the verse says that every single part, almost every single part of the animal is offered and burned upon the altar. And the Tama tells us, what does it mean? Every part is offered, is burned upon the altar. That's referring to to the horns. If you offer a ram as an ola, as an elevation offering, you have to burn the horns. So here's the question. The Midrash tells us that Abraham offered this ram as a sacrifice, but somehow the horns endured, they remained. Abraham offered this animal as an elevation sacrifice, and the laws require that even the horns are burned. How were there leftover chauffeurs? 
How do we have this ram of Abraham? Somehow those horns are still etched in somewhere. One was blown at Sinai and the right one, well, that's going to be blown in the future. If Abraham followed the rules, and we know that he did, the Ola offering, all parts of it, including specifically, the, the Talmud tells us, specifically points to the horns. Those need to be burned. Why did Abraham not burn the horns of the ram? This is the question that, again, I'm not expecting an answer. It's a very clever and interesting question. It's one that we have to just appreciate. Such a wonderful question. There are answers. And maybe sometime in the future, we'll talk about it. It may, in fact, be something which is more relevant to Rosh Hashanah. Of course, Rosh Hashanah, we blow the ram's horn to invoke the episode of the Binding of Isaac. But what a wonderful question to cap off a wonderful Parsha podcast. I hope that this raised our Parsha IQ. Made us a bit, a bit smarter and more handsome and more beautiful and more clever and a, maybe a bit funnier, better sense of humor, more charisma, everything. And I appreciate you listening. I'm saying goodbye. But I'm never really saying goodbye. Come on. You know, you can send me an email, rabbobjima.com. And it may take a while for me to get back to you, but I will get back to you, please, God. Or you could come visit the glorious Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Come visit. Come pop and say hi. Send me an email, rabbobjima.com. Have an incredible day. A sensational and transformational and exuberant Shabbos upcoming. And please don't tell me the mighty. We'll talk again next week.